The following message was recorded at Christ Church in Bartlett, Tennessee. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.ccbartlett.org. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we come again to, to open your word. Uh, Lord Jesus, again, uh, we are over our heads. Lord, um, we need your understanding as we open your word. We need you to speak clearly here. Um, without you, there is no understanding. There is no true wisdom. There's only foolishness. And so, Lord, we don't come here today to seek foolishness. We could have stayed at home for that. Lord, we come here to meet with you, to learn from you, to be fed by you, to be challenged by you, convicted by you. So, Holy Spirit, move how you would this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm glad you're here this morning. I, I don't know about you, but uh, I don't like getting lost. That's not one of my favorite things to do, all right? When I was uh, 15 years old, I flew to the Amsterdam airport. Don't worry, my parents knew about it. Uh, but I flew to the Amsterdam airport, and I got lost once I got there. I didn't understand that the Amsterdam airport is one of the largest airports in the world. And having only traveled on a plane with people before, like with my parents before, when you get off a plane, you don't think about what do I do now? You know, I, I guess I, I expected all of Amsterdam to show up and to say, this way, Grant, and no one did. And so for hours, I'm walking around this airport, like, well, I don't know where I am. And, and ev nothing's in English, which I just thought, like, it would be everywhere. And so I got lost, and, and I hated that. And, and, and so once I turned 16 and, and I started to drive, that fear of getting lost stayed with me. But the Lord was kind and gracious, and through some people, He brought me something called GPS, which I use to get everywhere, all right? Like, I don't think you understand. I have my home address and the church address saved in my GPS so that no matter where I am, I can just click one of those and be like, tell me where to go. Tell me how to get there. I use GPS for everything. We went to my sister's house where I've been many, many, many times uh, a couple weeks ago. We used GPS to get there. In fact, we ignored a turn we knew was right to follow the GPS turn, which was wrong. Do you understand? Like, we, we just follow it blindly. In, in fact, I, I, I looked up, I wanted to see if, if other people had done the same thing. So I looked up some instances. This lady drove onto a golf course following her GPS. This lady drove down a boat launch uh, into a lake following her GPS. Uh, this lady wanted to drive to an island and her GPS told her to drive through the ocean, so she did. Uh, and an older couple in Germany drove through a church because they got to this turn and there was no turn. There was just a church, but they thought their GPS knew that and they drove directly into a church. So sometimes uh, the GPS, it doesn't always tell us what's right. Hey, by the way, I didn't make this up. I just looked up these news articles. It's not my fault that all the drivers were women. All right, I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means. I'm just saying, I'm just telling you the truth. Don't shoot the messenger, all right? So... Here's my point of telling you that. Sometimes we end up places and we have no idea how we got there, right? 
And, and I don't mean just like physically, you, you follow your GPS and you say, I don't know how I got here. But I mean, like in our lives, we don't know how we got there. Maybe, it's, maybe there's some unfortunate, unforeseen circumstances. Maybe there is an, an illness. Maybe there is a death or, or a job loss or, or something like that. Maybe, maybe it's incredible blessings, you know, and, and you don't realize how they happen. Maybe you got that promotion you, you never thought you'd get. Maybe there was some, some money came in out of nowhere. Maybe you have a new home. Maybe there's a, a healing. Maybe there's even a new baby. Or maybe there's an incredible blessing where you think you're having a baby and the Lord says, ha ha, you're having two. So like, maybe it's something like that. Maybe, maybe just time did it. Maybe, maybe time just took you to a place and you say, how did I get here? When you're 13, you can't believe that you'll ever be 30. When you're 30, you can't believe you'll ever be 50. When you're 50, you can't ever believe you're going to be 80, right? When, when you've got a, a, a house full of kids who are constantly sick and pooping all the time, you can't believe that one day you're going to be a house with, with, with no kids, right? And so, and so you think about that. You think about that. Ushers, we have somebody on the front row. Can you please come forward and remove him? So sometimes like we end up in different places and we have no idea, how did I get here, right? Just some unforeseen circumstances, maybe just time took you to a place you never thought you'd go, right? And so uh, uh, one of the things about that is, is we get bewildered in moments like that. And the thing we need to remember is that even though we might be bewildered, the Lord never is because God's completely sovereign. Isaiah 45, 7 says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So God's in complete control. So, so we might be bewildered, but, but he never is, right? He didn't only see this coming, but, but it's only under his hand that it came, right? Now, I'm not saying that he did that, but it's only by uh, his, his allowing something to happen that it took place. And, and not only that, uh, but the Lord placed you there. Proverbs 16, 9 says, we can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. So, so he's placed you there, but, but take heart. Not only has he placed you there, he's in control. He's placed you where he already is. Do you understand? So, so God is, is perfectly present, right? He's perfectly present at all times. And so God's placed you in a place he already ha- is. He doesn't say, hey, I, I see this circumstance. I'm going to put my servant there. Good luck. He's saying, hey, I see the circumstance. I'm already here. Come on this way, right? He's placed you in a place he already is. John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Colossians 1.17 says, He's before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Wherever you are, He is. Wherever you're going, He already is. No matter if it's confusing, no matter if you never thought you'd be there, He already is there. David wrote in Psalm 139, he says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Isn't that comforting to know that no matter where we are, God is there. But, but even more comforting, not just that he's omnipresent, not just that he's there, but he's there for a reason. He's there to protect and to guard. I, I love in Psalm 139, we just read verse 7 through 10, but back up to verse 5, he says, You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. No matter what you'll face, he's already there and he's waiting to help you, to hem you in. He goes before you, he guards you from behind, right? And he lays his hand upon you. That's why he can say, You know what? The steadfast love of the Lord 
endures uh, forever. It never ceases and his mercies are new every morning. Why? Because he's already there. Tomorrow, he's already there with his mercies for you. So are, are, you, are you fatherless? He knows. He knows how painful that is. And he's already there waiting for mercy to help you. Before you got fired, he was in that moment waiting with mercy. Before you faced the difficulties of college, he was already there waiting with mercy to help you. Are you nervously walking through being a new parent? Well, listen, tomorrow, that, that cough that your daughter's going to cough and it's going to scare you to death, God's already there waiting for mercy to help you. That nice promotion with that huge bonus, God's already there waiting to help you and, and to give you mercy on how to handle that blessing. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the sympathetic high priest. But, but knowing God's sovereign care, it's wonderful and it's reason to sing and we can leave right now and, and that would be enough. And it's, it's reason for us to, to dance and, to, and just be foolish, right? Because, because the Lord is sovereign and, and He cares and He's powerful and every arena of our lives, He's there. But, but even knowing that, it raises another question. Okay, so I'm in a place I never thought I'd be. This is surprising and God's here and He's got His mercy for me. That's great. But why am I here? Like, 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 what do I do now? What do I do in this situation? What's my purpose here? Because there's always a purpose. God never wastes anything, right? Romans 8, 28 says he works all things together for the good of those who love him or are called according to his purpose. He never wastes anything. There's never a situation he puts you in. He's like, I don't, I don't know what to do with that one, right? He never wastes anything. Not suffering. That's why in Romans 5, it says we glory in our suffering. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, per perseverance, character, character, hope, and hope does not disappoint, right? So, so he doesn't waste suffering. He doesn't waste blessings. In 2 Corinthians 9, it says that you'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. So he even blesses us for a purpose, right? So God never wastes anything. So, so if God won't waste this place in my life, right? I, I, I don't understand this. This tragedy hit me, but God's not going to waste it. What do I do? What's my purpose? This blessing hit me. What do I do with it? What's my purpose, right? All of these things. Time brought me to a place I never thought I'd be. What do I do now? What's my purpose here? Well, our purpose is always the same, no matter the time in your life and Titus chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. It's going to help us understand that. Turn to Titus chapter 2. If you have your, your Bibles, turn to Titus chapter 2. If you don't have Bibles, there should be some under your seat, on little white Bibles. You can take that with you. That's our gift to you. Um, or if you just want to use it and put it back, that's fine too. Titus chapter 2. Now, again, the context is the message. I want to catch you up, right? Because without the context, uh, maybe you won't know what's going on. So, so let's catch you up. So here's where, here's where Titus comes from. Paul was on Crete, all right, and here's, here's Crete. So Paul was on Crete, and he planted a church, and as was his custom, he would leave someone behind to establish elders and to, uh, and to continue teaching and, and, and growing that church and guiding that church. And so uh, he selected um, Titus to be the person to leave, to, to lead that church, right, and to set that church up. And and Crete was known in the, in, the, in the ancient times to be a place of immorality. And maybe because of this weakness, the enemy attacks Crete with false teachers. And so the enemy starts sending false teachers to that church, right? And so it's a, it's a fledgling church. It's a, it's a brand new church, right? It's going through its own growing pains. And, and it's in a culture of immorality. And, and so all of a sudden, there are these, these false teachers start showing up. And this is Paul's main reason for writing to Titus. Look at chapter 1, verse 10. He says... 
There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So we don't exactly know what the false teachers were, were teaching, but what we do know, they're part of the circumcision party, all right? So they're, they're people who are, who are trying to bring them back to be adherents to the law and, and, and even man-made law to justify themselves. They're teaching Jewish myths, and, and we know that they, their lives, however, exposed them. We know that their lives did not show them to be true followers of God. Verse 16, chapter 1. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So Paul writes and, and combats this false teaching. Number one, through the establishment of elders, right? That's chapter one. He starts saying, you really need these guys. You need them to, to guide you. You need them to, to have discipline and, and authority, right? You need these guys. So, so elders are important. I understand we have elders and sometimes you might feel like, why do we have them? Sometimes I think the same thing. However, look at the scriptures. They are important. They're vital to your protection, right? So please pray for our elders. And secondly, uh, he writes to combat this false teaching with practical instruction on godly living. And it starts here in chapter 2. Let's read chapter 2 together, um, and then we'll, we'll, we'll look for some, some meaning here. Verse 1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what's good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, Show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So as we look back at Titus chapter 2, he names five different types of people in vastly different places in life. He talks to older men. So, so this is a patriarchal society, all right? And so they have massive responsibility on their shoulders. And, and he addresses the younger men who are, who are they're learning, they're, they're discovering, right? They don't have that same type of responsibility yet. Then he speaks to the older women who have an incredible responsibility with family, right? So they have a lot of people they're responsible for. They have a, a young woman who is in a new place trying to discover what does it mean to be a wife? What does it mean to be a, a mother, right? Trying to to find their, their role in life and then all the way even to a, a bond servant, even to a, a slave and someone who, who maybe, maybe has a lot of responsibility, but, but maybe they're ill-treated. Maybe they have no rights, but they all share the same purpose. And what is it? Look, look at, at verse 5. It starts to hint at it that the word of God may not be reviled. Verse, verse 8 continues having nothing evil to say about us. And verse 10, I think, sums it up. 
but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. So no matter if you're an older man, no matter if you're under immense pressure or a younger man, no matter if your surroundings are alarmingly new or an older woman, no matter if you have many people you're responsible for, a younger woman, no matter if you're trying to figure out what your role in life looks like, no matter if you're a slave, no matter if you feel completely mistreated through the way that you live, you are to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. That's the title this morning, Adorn the Doctrine of God, our Savior. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter if you're in a place that's surprising, unexpected, foreign, overwhelming, exciting, or boring, new or old. Your purpose is that through the way that you live, you would adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, which means to display the beauty of the gospel in how you live. No matter where you are, no matter, no matter if it's a place you want to be or not, your goal, your purpose is to adorn, to display the beauty of the gospel in how you live. Jesus bought you for this. Look at verse 14. Who gave himself, that's Jesus, for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So he gave himself for us. He didn't give a possession, right? He didn't give something precious but corruptible like like gold or silver. He, He didn't give something inadequate like an animal. He didn't give another man or he didn't give an angel. He gave himself for this, all right? He gave himself for us to what? To, to redeem us from all lawlessness. He, he did what we couldn't do. He justified us according to the law, which we could not do. For God did what the law couldn't do. Look at Romans 8, 2 through 4. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So, so He gave Himself to redeem us from all lawlessness, to do what we couldn't do, all right? So we couldn't justify ourselves by the law. We couldn't do it. We've been trying and trying and trying, and we couldn't do it, right? We couldn't keep God's perfect law, and so the law had failed in our lives. So God did what the law couldn't do by sending his son redeeming us from all lawlessness so he gives himself for that and also to purify for himself a people for his own possession you were bought for his good pleasure you aren't your own that's why first corinthians 6 says aren't don't you know that you aren't your own for you've been bought with a price therefore glorify god in your body so he does what the the law couldn't do he justifies us so he gives himself to justify us to to make us right before god and he he does it for his own good pleasure okay so he buys us with his blood we are not our own all right your your ambitions your dreams your goals not yours anymore they're god's all right your your role as a father mother child brother sister neighbor coworker, boss whatever it's not about you anymore you've been purchased a people for his own possession and then look what it says for his own possession who are zealous for good works zealous so passionate it drives them it defines them for good works why why would jesus give himself to possess a people who are zealous for good works here's why to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Matthew 5, 16 says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to, to God, uh, to your Father 
who is in heaven. So, he died and gave himself for us, not for us to just sit back and enjoy that, not for us to just sit back and listen to Caleb and songs about it and just think how, how great this feels, that Jesus came, justified me, uh, he, he owns me, I belong to him. Isn't that a wonderful thing? But he did that to, to move us, to make us zealous for good works. Why? To adorn the gospel of God, our Savior, to display the beauty of the gospel through our lives, Right? For us to not do that, for us not to be zealous for good works, is to make a mockery of the cross. It's to do a disservice to the sacrifice of Jesus. He died for you to actively show by the way that you live and where you are that the gospel is beautiful. To, uh, to d- adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. To display the beauty of the gospel in how you live. Well, what does that look like? Well, uh, over the next few weeks, this month, we're going to spend our, most of our time in in, in chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. And, and I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to be so God-honoring, so life-giving to our church because it's going to deal with how do we adorn the doctrine of God generationally, right? Which I think is something that, that we'll definitely, uh, we definitely need here in our, our church. Lately, I've had conversations with, with some people, some older people, as we, as we talk about culture and as we talk about the world around them, it's bewildering and, and it's confusing and they don't understand it and they don't know how to, to even reach it. And, and as I've talked to, to, to these older people about, about our culture and, and, and about our generation and all kinds of other things, the, they, they have a heart that wants to see the kingdom work of God continue and grow and yet, they, they, they haven't given any action to support the generations underneath them in doing that. They haven't given any, 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 any type of themselves to, to leading other people to continue that kingdom work that they want to see. I've, I've observed younger generations, people in younger generations, who are, who are enduring pain that, that, that could have been avoided. They're enduring mistakes and pitfalls that could have been avoided. Older people who are succumbing to fears that, that, that should subside, Right? And I think maybe the reason why we're suffering these pains is because we don't know how to adorn the gospel of God where we are generationally. We don't know what that looks like. As, as now, uh, now I'm a retiree, what does that look like, right? Now, now I'm a teenager, what does that look like, right? Now, now I'm a new mother, what does that look like to adorn the gospel of God in, in my life and how we relate to one another? But, but we're going to start looking today just... Just at verse 11 through 13, just, just a few moments here, verse 11 through 13, and, and it's going to help root us in the gospel as we look back at verses 1 through 10, all right? So, so these next few weeks, as, as we're going through verse 1 through 10, we're going to reference these, these three verses over and over again, because it's going to root us in the gospel here uh, in the weeks to come. So, so no matter where we are, who you are, our goal is the same. Remember, our purpose is the same. Adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. So what does that look like to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior? I, I love the word adorn. I wish people would use it more, right? When, when you think about like, like Christmas and Thanksgiving's coming up, which, which with, for Thanksgiving coming up in my household, that means Christmas is coming up, all right? Thanksgiving is a speed bump to Christmas, right? That's all it is. Like my, my wife the other day before I left, she said, hey, could you get some Christmas movies for me and the kids to watch? And I was like, it is, it's October. Yep, it's October. Why are you doing that, right? But, but again, Thanksgiving in my house is just a speed bump. And so I, I love the idea that, that we're going to adorn our house with, with different decorations, right? We adorn the tree, right? I, I love that word. It's, it means like to make 
pretty. That's what I think of when I think of adorn. Make it, make it look nice, right? Every, every morning, my, my wife adorns herself with makeup. She doesn't need it. She's gorgeous, but she uses it anyway, right? And she adorns herself. Ladies, how long did you adorn yourself this morning with jewelry and makeup and, and all kinds of things? You don't need it. You're all wonderful. But anyway, men, you could have spent some more time adorning, right? But, but, but you think about that word adorn, right? And, th- and that's what I think of. And but when we talk about adorning the doctrine of God our Savior, it, we don't really need to dress up something that's so beautiful, right? I mean, I mean, the, the gospel's beautiful. I don't need to adorn that. To adorn the doctrine of God, what I need to do is just clearly display it. I need to get out of the way. I need to not mess it up. That's what I need to do. I just need to clearly display it. The fact that the God of all, the God of over all things, right? The, the perfect Lord of Lord, the King of Kings would come down here to me, to a people not looking for him, not wanting him, actually actively hating him, would come and give himself for me to make me new to make me like him. That's beautiful. We, we're lost. We're hopeless. We're enemies. And he would say, mine, I'm going to reconcile you to myself. Your greatest joy is here in me and I'm going to come get you. What you're pursuing, it's, it's, it's going to hurt you. It's going to lead to death. So I'm going to come and I'm going to get you. You're not coming to me, so I'm going to come. I'm going to rescue you. That's beautiful, right? I don't need to tell, I can't tell you a better story than that, right? There's nothing more beautiful than that. So to adorn the gospel, to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior means we just got to show it. I've just got to clearly display it because there's nothing more beautiful than that. Let me say this before we move on. If, if you haven't surrendered yourself to that beautiful story, if you haven't surrendered yourself to that beautiful reality, that, that, that what God says to you is, is, listen, come follow me. No, I know where you are. I, I know how guilty you feel. I, I know how shameful you feel, right? No, no, no. Come follow me. No, I, I know, you, I know you, you can't keep it together. I, I know you're not perfect, but, but I am. I can keep it together for you. If you haven't surrendered to that reality, if, if you haven't followed him and trusted him, what he's done for you on the cross, if you haven't stopped trying to justify yourself before God and just embraced what he's done for you, if you haven't said to him, what you've done for me is far greater than anything I could do for myself, so I'm going to surrender myself to that. I'm going to live for you now. If you haven't done that, what are you waiting for? That beautiful narrative, that beautiful story that we will sing about for, for all of eternity, right? The Lord displays it on himself for all of eternity. It's waiting for you to be a part of it. You say, Grant, I, you don't know where, I, where I'm coming from. You don't know where I've been. You don't know where I was last night. You're right, I don't. But the reality is the beauty of the love of God for you, the sacrifice of God for you is far greater than anything you've done. Far greater. It outweighs it. It overwhelms it. And the Lord wants to replace all those things in your life with himself, with his righteousness. So what are you waiting for? Surrender to him this morning. Be a part of that beautiful story. So, so again, to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior is just to clearly display it. It's beautiful. You don't have to dress it up, all right? We don't have to put lipstick on it, all right? It doesn't need earrings, all right? It's beautiful. Just display it. So what are we displaying? 
Well, here's what we're displaying. Number one, we, we live to show God's saving grace. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. If we're going to display it, we, we need to know what it is. God's saving grace is, it's inviting. For, for the grace of God, look, has appeared. Jesus came to us. Jesus came looking for us even when we weren't looking for Him. He called out to us even when we weren't calling out to Him. It got me thinking uh, about this. Am, am I displaying that type of inviting grace to other people? I, I, I like my space, all right? I, I don't like it when, when people complain to me at line in a store. Anybody? You know what I'm talking about? You're waiting in line, maybe the cashier's going real slow, and the person turns around and they're like, Man, I always pick the wrong line. I don't care, dude. Just turn around, all right? Like, I don't, look at the magazines. That's what everybody else does. Just leave me alone, all right? Like, just let me, I got to get my Slim Jims and get out of here, okay? I don't like that. I, you know, I like, my, I like my space. Listen, let me tell you this. I'm going to let you in on a secret. Sometimes I like to eat lunch by myself right? I just like that. Anybody with me, right? I have three kids at home, okay? Like, like I like to go and just be by myself. And so let me give you, let me tell you this. If you run into me in public and you see me sitting down eating by myself, it's okay. All right? It's okay. You don't, no, no, no. It's okay. All right? You do not have to sit down with me. I'm not saying I wouldn't enjoy talking to you. That's great. But don't feel, don't be like, oh man, he's, that's so sad. I need to, no, 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 no. It's not sad. No, 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 no. It's not sad. It's beautiful. Leave me alone. All right, but anyway, I don't like, I, I like my space. That's just how I am. I just like my space, right? Like, and don't, like, do not talk to me in the bathroom. That is a cone of silence, all right? Do not talk to me in there, all right? That's it. That's, we don't talk anymore after that. That's like saying, Grant, you're dead to me, because that's what it is, all right? Don't talk to me in there. But anyway, I like my, I like my space, and I started to think, but but God's saving grace, it came for me. It welcomed me. It didn't shun me. It didn't push me away. Am I inviting to people like, like God's saving grace? Do I, do I look for others to be gracious to rather than always trying to protect myself? Am I looking for others to be gracious to? Do I welcome others to this saving grace? Right? So God's saving grace, it's, it's inviting. It's also, it's indiscriminate. Look what it says, bringing salvation for all people. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter who your mama is. God's saving grace is indiscriminate. Are you indiscriminate about who you serve, who you show kindness to? Do we discriminate about, about who we love? That, that will, will look different. That's going to look different for some of us. For, for some of us, it, it, might, be, it might be race. If we're honest, it might be race. And if that's true, be honest with yourself. You're not doing yourself any type of service by, by lying to yourself and telling yourself, no, 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 that's not a problem. For, no, no, no. Be honest and repent and let the Lord change that part of you. For some of us, it, it might be the way someone talks or looks. We just look at them and immediately we, we pass judgment on them and, and, and they're not worth our grace. How dare we say something like that? But they're not worth our time or our love. For some, it might be something they've done to you or someone else. Do you serve discriminately? I, I love in, in Mark chapter 2, Jesus goes um, and he's eating at Levi's house, a tax collector. and It says he's eating with tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees couldn't believe it. Why? Because in their world, the Pharisees' world, tax collectors and sinners didn't deserve their kindness. They didn't deserve their time 
They were making mistakes. They knew that they're doing is wrong. They don't deserve my time. They don't deserve their work, their devotion, their love. And Jesus says to them, no, guys, they need it more than anybody. The people you think don't deserve it, they need it the most. Don't hold it back from them. And so I had to, I had to ask myself this question, and I hated my answer, but I had to ask myself this question. Grant, who are your tax collectors and sinners? Who in your world are tax collectors and sinners? It's easy for you to show grace and kindness to students. You love students. It's easy. It's easy for you to show grace and kindness to your kids because, well, they're not teenagers yet. It's easy, right? But who have you written off? Who have you said, hopeless? Who have you said, not worth it? Who are my tax collectors and sinners? Because the saving grace of God that we're to display, clearly adorn, clearly display, it's inviting and it's indiscriminate. The second thing, we, we not only live to show God's saving grace, we live to show God's training grace. Look at verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. We are walking examples of the gospel of God. Walking examples now. It says in the present age, not later. Now listen, we've all fallen victim to the later mentality, right? You know what I mean? I'll, my prayer life will be, will be better as I get older, right? We'll, we'll, you're an example to your kids and how you pray now, right? Well, you know what? As I get older, I'll mellow out. My temper will get better and, you know, I'll treat my neighbor better. Well, well your neighbors notice now, right? Well, well, you know what? My, my words will be more encouraging just as I get to know somebody better, right? I just, it takes me a while to warm up to some. Well, your coworkers notice your words now. So, so you're being watched now, but, but listen, remember this. God's sovereign. He's placed you there and he's waiting. Remember, he's waiting with his mercy to help you there and, and his grace is helping to train you now. The Bible says that he started this work in you, changing you, making you more like himself, and he's gonna finish it. So he's going to be faithful to work it out in your life. So every area of our lives is being trained and changed by the gospel. The training grace of God is changing our personal desires. Look, it says to live self-controlled lives. We're told to renounce worldly passions. And the gospel's training us to do that. Mark 8, 34 through 35 says, If anyone would come after me, must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel We'll save it. The training grace of God, it's changing our personal desires through daily submission to Jesus. The training grace of God's changing our relationships. It says to live upright lives. Philippians 2, 3 says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourself. This is an attitude that's so foreign in our culture and it can't be ignored. This is an attitude that clearly displays the training grace of God. When we put others first, God's really working something out in you when we do that. The training grace of God's changing our devotion. It says to live godly lives. So renounce ungodly li- ungodliness. So that's renounce, that's disown, no connection with. So disown this impiety, right? And embrace this devotion to godliness. Colossians illustrates this this way. Colossians 3.2 says, set your minds on the things that are above, not on things on earth. So, so turn your devotion, turn your affections to godliness, all right? So this stirs my affections for Jesus. This, this moves me towards Jesus. So I'm gonna set my mind on those things. And then it says in verse five, put to death the sinful. 
earthly things lurking within you. So eliminate those things that steal my devotion. So for example, there are things in your life that maybe steal your devotion to the Lord. Maybe, maybe you're a man in here, maybe you struggle with lust, right? Maybe rated our movies that have some nudity in it. They're not just things you can overlook. They'll steal your devotion to the Lord. They'll mess with your head. So I'll eliminate those things and I'll embrace those things and turn my devotion to the Lord. Maybe there are things that stir your affections for Jesus, spending time with, with Christian friends, right? Uh, spending time in, in prayer with other believers. So I'm gonna devote myself to those things, right? The training grace of God, it's, it's changing our devotion. So to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, we're gonna display His saving grace and His training grace uh, clearly in our lives. But what keeps us focused on that? And here's the, here's, I, you say secret, it's stupid. It's not secret, it's right here. But, but, but here's the key. Look at verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's, that's our focus, our blessed hope, the returning of Jesus. This is how we continually focus on adorning the doctrine of God. This is how we continually focus on showing and displaying the saving grace and training grace of God in our lives. We are focused on our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We look forward to Jesus' return. It should daily affect our lives. Alexander McLaren said this, The apostolic church, it's a first century church, thought more about the second coming of Jesus Christ than about death and heaven. Think about that. Think about how true that is for us. The early Christians were looking not for a cleft in the ground called a grave, but for a cleavage in the sky called glory. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible thought? They thought more about the second coming of Jesus than they did death in heaven. Isn't that incredible? And you, you look in, in Acts chapter 1. I love this picture in Acts chapter 1. Jesus ascends into heaven, right? And his disciples, it says they're looking intently at the sky. Can you see? Yeah, he's right behind, right behind that, that cloud. He's not. Nope. That's a bird. I don't know. It's a, no, it's a plane. I don't know what that is. Uh, but anyway, so they're, they're looking intently up at the sky. And they're looking so intently when they don't see him anymore. God has to send angels to say, hey, stop, stop looking up there. He's going to come back the way you saw. Just go, go do the Great Commission. Go get out of here, right? He had to send angels because they were so focused on him. They're so focused on him leaving and him returning. He had to send angels to break their gaze. It makes me think that, that in their lives, they daily thought about Jesus coming back. It makes me think that in their lives, they probably visited that spot and just thought, now? No. Now? Now? Right? It makes me think that in their daily lives, they heard a sound. Maybe they heard a trumpet and they immediately thought, this is it, right? They're daily focused on the return of Jesus. They never stop looking to the sky. Do we live believing that Jesus told the truth? Do we live believing that when Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'm going to come back and get you? Do we live with that reality? I talk about death all the time. I talk about heaven all the time. They're wonderful thoughts. But do I live with my blessed hope? That's what it calls it, our blessed hope. Do I live with that blessed hope in front of me of Jesus' return? How do we, how do we I want to close with this thought. How do we focus on that hope? Because we have to. Number one, we're told to watch. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6. So, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and sober. It, it, it keeps us focused when we watch for the Lord's coming. C.S. Lewis said, precisely because we cannot predict the moment, we must be ready at all moments. 
There's a, a girl uh, I went to high school with. I, I really didn't know her. I'll be honest. I really didn't know her. And, and we, um, I saw on Facebook um, she had given birth to a daughter earlier in the year. And, and, and after giving birth, they discovered a, a tumor um, uh, on her ovaries. And um, long story short, this, this past week she went home to be with the Lord. She's 29 years old. And I started to think like, it, it, it wrecked me. It, it just, it just, it just ruined, it just ruined me for the day. And, and, and all I thought about the whole day was that I could really stand before you now. Being 29 doesn't protect me, right? It doesn't, I, I could be there with you now. And then the Lord said, death doesn't have to come for you. I could come for you. Don't you believe me? I'm coming for you. And man, I tell you that day, I was way focused on how I spoke to people. I was way focused on, on the time I spent with people and with my children. And, and, and was I loving? Was I kind? Was I serving? Was I making the most of every opportunity? Because today could be the day that He's coming back for me. Lord, may it be true. It also keeps us encouraged. Every moment we're looking for Him, we realize that every moment is closer to Him. J.C. Riley said, A true Christian has a good hope when he looks ahead. The worldly man has none. A true Christian sees light in the distance. The worldly man sees nothing but darkness. And what is the hope of a true Christian? It's just this, that Jesus Christ is coming again. Coming without sin, coming with all his people, coming to wipe away every tear, coming to raise his sleeping saints from the grave, coming to gather together all his family that they may be forever with him. Why is a believer patient? Because he looks for the coming of the Lord. He can bear hard things without murmuring. He knows the time is short. He waits quietly for the king. So we're told to watch. We're also told to pray. Jesus says in Luke 21, He says, heaven and earth will pass away. My words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it'll come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth. So Jesus says, listen, while you wait, the cares of the world will attempt to weigh on you and weigh your heart down and distract you. Anybody? Anybody in there right now? It's going to attempt to weigh on you. His solution, verse 36, Jesus' solution. Stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So Jesus says, listen, stay awake, watch, and pray. Pray for strength. That's why Jesus says, listen, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burden, I'll give you rest. So we watch for the second coming of Jesus and we pray as we watch to endure. And lastly, we work. The author of Hebrews says, in light of His coming, we shouldn't relax. We should, we should work hard and, and even see how we can stir each other up to work even harder. Hebrews 10, 24 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one, one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. As Jesus is coming closer, as each day passes and it's another day closer to Him coming back, do more and more, work harder and harder, encouraging one another to work harder and harder. Why? Because when Jesus appears, I have one thing I can give him, and that's what I've done with what he's given me. And I don't know about you, but I want to give him my best because he's given me his best. I want to stand before him and say, I've done everything I can because he's done everything he can for me. Right? So to live with the second coming of Jesus in mind is at the heart 
of following Jesus. It's at the heart of adorning the doctrine of the gospel of God. It's at the heart of displaying His saving grace. I can do it because I'm focused on Him coming back. It's at the heart of displaying His training grace. It's at the heart of adorning the doctrine of God our Savior. With this in mind, I'd like to close by by reading you this passage. and, And Lord, may you stir our hearts. Would you stand with me and as, as I read this passage? It's out of Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was, it was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He'll dwell with them and they'll be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new and he said write this down for these words are trustworthy and true and he said to me it's done I'm the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son but as for the cowardly the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Lord Jesus, I admit that um, I do talk a lot about death. I do talk a lot about heaven. I would say thinking on your second coming, that blessed hope you've given me to anchor my soul. Lord, I I admit that that hasn't been something that's daily been a part of my life. And I'm sorry for that. And I pray you would change that in me. Lord, I rejoice that as believers, your second coming is indescribable. Lord, it can, it can bring us through the hardest times. It can sustain us in the best of times. It is our blessed hope. Lord, hasten the day when we would see you face to face. Tarry no longer. But Lord, for those in this room that don't know you, who haven't surrendered their life to you, the idea of your second coming, of seeing you face to face, it's terrible. And it should be terrible. Because Lord, if there's anyone in this room who hasn't surrendered their life to you, who isn't following you, they'll stand before the perfect righteous judge with their own righteousness with what they've done. Newsflash, it's not good enough. It's not perfect. It fails. Lord, that's a terrible, frightening thought. 
But Lord, your beautiful doctrine, your beautiful gospel says that if that thought's terrible to you, if that thought's frightening to you, and it should be, then it doesn't have to be any longer. Lord, if we would just say, if we would just say to you, we want to follow you, I want to surrender my life to you, I want to give you myself, Lord, please forgive me, come into my heart, change me, make me yours. Then Lord, the second coming, instead of being our terror, can be our blessed hope. Because the word says that if we would call upon you, whoever would call upon you, we'll be saved. So Lord, as as we sing this song and worship you now, I pray for the believers in this room. I pray we couldn't stop thinking about our blessed hope. Lord, may we worship you and give back. Give back for what you've done for us. And if there are those in this room who the thought of your second coming is a terror, that Lord, during this time, they'd give their hearts to you. They'd stop running. They'd stop striving and fighting you. They'd surrender to you today for the first time. Become your child and receive a blessed hope. Receive a new life in you. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.